A beautiful, deep, rich forest green. It's a color most often associated with the Pacific Northwest. And then there's the rain. Some would say it is dreary and unending. But us Washingtonians are used to it. In fact, some of us love the rain so much, well, there's a word for that. A pluviophile. Someone who finds joy and peace of mind during those rainy days. Acres and acres of beautiful trees that are fed by the rain in forests as far as the eye can see. And even in the cities, lush, forested pockets of green space where nature lovers can escape the hustle and bustle, something the Green River Killer took advantage of. All of those dark, heavily wooded and silent places where only the trees held the secrets of a cold-blooded killer's dark deeds. He was a killing machine. One case, on the way to work, picks up a young girl. First, he has sex with her, kills her, keeps her in the back of the pickup truck with a canopy on it, drives to work, works four hours. At lunch break, he goes out to his truck, drives to a dead-end street, has sex with a dead body in the back of the truck, drives back to work, finishes out the shift, starts to drive home, hits a dead-end street, has sex with the body again, buries her, and then drives to his home, has dinner with his wife, watches TV, and goes to bed. It would take nearly two decades before they would finally unmask the Green River Killer, the most prolific serial killer in our nation's history. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Oh, Carolyn, I cannot wait to hear your version of this story, knowing that you were there yes. when it happened. You lived in this area. You lived right where the Green River Killer was dumping his bodies. And it was in the news as you were growing up, as you were a child. Yeah. I'm sure it made huge impacts on you. Well, I mean, this story has really opened up a lot for me as I was researching it and remembering it. And when you talk about the Green River Killer, we've got to talk about the Green River. So this is a fast moving and it's deep in autumn and winter. And then it slows down and gets skinny during the summer. So the Green River runs 65 miles through cities like Auburn, Renton, Tukwila, and Kent. And Kent is actually where I grew up. But an August summer day back in 1982 would come to forever taint that river. Two young boys were riding their bicycles over the Meeker Street Bridge. It was a gorgeous summer day. Sun was shining with the slight breeze, the kind of breeze that had the scent of blackberries. But that all changed when the young boys slammed their feet back on their brakes, skidding sideways to a quick stop. There was something floating in the Green River below. Whatever it was, they realized, was caught up in one of the pilings. So they peered over the railing. Their eyes widened uncomprehendingly. Nothing in their short lives could prepare them for what they saw floating below. The body of a teenage girl, defiled, wearing only shoes and socks. Her jeans, underwear, and shirt were still knotted around her neck. The killer had used her own clothing to strangle her. 
Her name, we now know, was Wendy Lee Cofield, and she was just 16 years old. She had run away from her foster family in Tacoma just two weeks before. It was the summer of 1982. We know that Wendy was the first of many vulnerable young women to be killed by the Green River Killer. At first... Law enforcement didn't connect Wendy's murder to a potential serial killer, but by the summer's end, four more bodies of young women would be found in and around the Green River. They knew that they were dealing with a serial killer. Deborah Bonner, she was the Green River Killer's second victim. She was last seen alive on the evening of July 25th. Now remember, this is 1982 when she left a motel on Pacific Highway South to catch some dates. That's what they called it back then, to catch some dates. Deborah was 22 and had a history of prostitution. Two and a half weeks later, on August 12th, Deborah's body was discovered in the Green River. Her naked body had floated down the river and was caught up in a log jam. The next victim, 31-year-old Marcia Chapman, she was living with her three children in an apartment near Pacific Highway South. So we're seeing a trend here. I find it interesting, though, this last victim you mentioned is in mm-hmm. her 30s. She's mm-hmm. a, you know, a little bit older. She's not adolescent or pubescent like the other victims would seem to have probably appeared to be Mm -hmm. and she had children Mm -hmm. was she in prostitution as well or she was um she was known to be involved in prostitution in august 1st that summer she left her apartment and was never seen again Hmm. so 10 days later on the night of august 11th 17 year old cynthia hines was out on Pacific Highway South, and she was also working as a prostitution. She was never seen again. One day later, on August 12th, at approximately 1 p.m., 16-year-old Opal Mills placed a call to her parents from Angle Lake State Park. That's just off of Pacific Highway South. After that call, she was never heard from again. Now, all of these five young women were found within a month of each other in that summer of 1982 in and around the Green River. And although the killer would not use the Green River as a place to dump his victims, he would forever be known as the Green River Killer. And for the next 20 years, he would literally terrorize a community. The killer didn't always use the Green River to dump his victim. It was just the first out-of-the-way secluded green space that he took advantage of to try and hide his despicable, deadly deeds. But the shock of that first scene of the crime would forever burn the label of the Green River Killer into the minds of police and into the collective consciousness of a horrified community. So, Kim, we have the beginning of 1982. I felt that it was important to really kind of tell you the names of the victims. There are so many victims. They are they were the first ones. They are the ones that started this investigation. And while they were all involved in prostitution at the time, now we might call it human trafficking, especially with the underage victims. Do we know much else about them? I mean, they were more than that, right? They weren't just victims. They weren't just prostitutes. These were young women that had families who missed them, that, you know, had potential, that could have had wonderful lives, but they were cut short. Do we know much else about them other than the fact that they engaged in prostitution? Well, there's there's a lot to be known, just as we all have our stories. But that's a huge part of this story, too, where not only were their lives cut short because of this killer, but the way in which they were viewed was a part of the problem. Now, what we know 
is a majority of the murders occurred between 1982 and 1984. And although the killer, he slowed killing, he never stopped killing altogether until his arrest in 2001. So so basically, almost all were allegedly involved in prostitution, and they met their fates while working the streets. These disappearances and deaths remained unsolved. There's a huge time lapse between all of these victims, all of these victims, and, and they're just, it's not getting solved. Some were murdered, unceremoniously discarded. Often in these groups or clusters around King County, the fate of others remained unknown for years. So they would be people who perhaps were runaways, known to be prostitutes, and they just disappeared. And so they would assume they were victims of the Green River Killer? Well, they would assume that they were victims of the Green River Killer, but then they would also find tips to say, oh, this person was found, or oh, this person was seen here. And so the co- cops were kind of going back and forth, back and forth. Is this a victim? Is it not a victim? So they, they didn't even find have the bodies. a good idea on the number of victims no, in this time. No, no they didn't. It, but they kept finding them. Yeah. They kept finding Whatever them. the number was, yeah. it kept going up. So their families and friends in a state of panic and heartache, what happened to their loved ones? They would have to wait until 2001, 19 years after the first victim was found, when law enforcement finally caught the man they believed was the Green River Killer. And I wanted to put this cut in the beginning so we can answer that question. We can hear the victims' families because really this story is should be all about the victims. And a lot of times you know, that gets lost. You have held us in bondage for all these years because we have hated you. We wanted to see you die. But uh, it's all going to be over now. And that is providing we can forgive you. He's an animal. I don't wish for him to die. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. I know he feels no remorse. His beady little evil eyes would probably choke everyone that's been up here, but you won't have that opportunity this time. You've you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. And he doesn't say to forgive just certain people. He says to forgive all. So you are forgiven, sir. That's one of the victim's families. You're a loser. You're a coward. You're a nobody. You're an animal. I'm angry. I will always be angry. I will never have that close. I will never have my sister back in my life. You broke my family apart for 20 years. I hope you rot in hell, son of a bitch. Please. Please refrain from applauding. It's inappropriate in a court proceeding. So that that gives you kind of a, a, a flavor for the the feelings running so high. The idea that you should forgive a serial killer, mm-hmm. I could never. I, I'm sorry. I they don't deserve it. There are so many people who make mistakes and are regretful and and deserve forgiveness, but. And this comes down to faith. This comes down to the people that when I was listening to the court proceedings, it's a part of their faith to to forgive. But you know what? I mean, I would be the one that was like that last you know, one who was cussing him out. <laughs> yep, that'd be me. <laughs> that would be me. I would too. be like trying to climb over the banister and oh, I know, smack the son oh, of a bitch. Know. <laughs> and and you know what? That was the only time from when I when I watched it. I mean, maybe he cried other times, but the 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 video that I was watching, that's when he started crying when he was getting his own forgiveness, not not for the victims, oh, not so for their not, families. Like not when, he when felt someone, bad. Yeah, because he was uh, being forgiven. So. Wow. 
I think that that's what made me want to. When I first started talking, when we first started talking about doing the Green River Killer, I I was like, that's so overdone. Everybody knows the story, stuff like that. But I went and met with, had coffee with one of my uh, sources, who's actually now a friend um, within the uh, law enforcement, and he brought it up like there's still victims out there. They're still, you know, these families still deserve justice and these families deserve to have their day, even though it's been so many years later. And that's what kind of made me come back to you and say, hey, let's talk about it because the victims always get forgotten in this case. Yes, especially when you're talking about the number of victims, Mm -hmm. dozens of victims. It's really hard to recognize the individuality of each of those people when they're just lumped together like, dozens. Yeah, that and that's exactly what happened. So, and then also as I was doing it, as I was researching this story, I realized that I was 12 years old when I actually became obsessed with the Green River Killer. And trust me when I say obsessed, it was more like anxious. I mean, I was a creative kid, but back then there wasn't a lot of imagery of killers, let alone serial killers. I mean, it was 1984. There wasn't that 24-hour news cycle or Instagram or chat rooms or TV shows like Mindhunters or Making of a Murderer or podcasts like Scene of the Crime. I lived in Kent by that bridge where those boys were riding their bikes and where they found, they didn't find all of the bodies there, but around that area. And it was shocking. Back then, you know, we mostly rode our bikes to the arcade and roamed the streets and packs until, you know, that that famous thing, the streetlights came on. Yeah, Did your mom or dad ever change the rules once all this started happening to keep you a little more inside? No. In fact, my mom used to run around the Green River because it was so rural back there. It was so it was like farm country. I would actually be worried for her. I just I don't think that she thought that I don't think our minds could really go there. Well, I wonder if she was like so many others at the time where it's like, well, he's he's targeting vulnerable girls who were in prostitution. Mm -hmm. That's not my daughter. Yeah. Or her. Right. Yeah. She actually even said that when I was talking to her all these years later. She's like, I didn't know that you were afraid. And she goes, and obviously I wasn't his victim. And again, out of sight, out of mind. But it really wasn't it really wasn't out of my mind. You know, I can remember back in the day that the worst thing I can remember parents fretting about when it came to media was whether or not to let their kids watch the day after. And that was the show about nuclear annihilation, because basically the Cold War was our boogeyman. Mm -hmm. That is until police started pulling bodies out of the Green River by my house. And then the insatiable need to understand the motivations of the Green River Killer began with those images, grim-faced detectives climbing up the riverbank, tromping through the tall reeds as they carried out those plastic body bags on stretchers. That footage was played and replayed. And remember, back then, there was only three networks. It was four, five, and seven. So at the time, I didn't even know what a serial killer was. But the Green River Killer changed all that. It kind of planted a dark seed that not only took root, but bloomed, I guess, into a lifelong interest in true crime that until recently, obviously, I kept under wraps because I right. just felt like it wasn't, it was weird. Why did, why was I interested? I didn't expect to find an answer to that question from the most unlikely, I don't know if I'll call him kindred spirit, but former King County Sheriff Dave Reichert, when I asked him what kept him motivated to crack this case after so many years, He said a couple of things. He said, first, even though it's been nearly 30 years, what still haunted him is Marsha Chapman, 
whose body he found pinned under rocks. Marcia's right hand, her right arm was free, and the current of the Green River caused her hand to move back and forth like she was waving to him as if she were saying, help me. Oh. And the second? I'm the oldest of seven kids. I ran away from home when I was a senior in high school. I grew up in a home with domestic violence. So I sort of had that connection to the victims in, in that regard anyway, feeling like I could be one of them. So Reichert is the centerpiece in our two-part series on the Green River Killer because he was actually the first detective on the scene in 1982. We all had areas of responsibility, but I was happily walking by the sergeant's desk and he had picked up the phone from the communications center And they had told him that they found a body in the Green River near Kent. And as I was walking by, he hung up the phone. He says, Reichert, there's a found body. Go out and handle that case. So that's, I just had me walking by. That was my uh, fortune or misfortune, if however you want to look at it. So just if, if you're tracking, Wendy Cofield was the first one. They didn't make any connection with the serial killer. The sec- this is the second one, Deborah's body. And so he went there thinking that, I mean, not to be crude, but this is a one-off. Typical um, murder case yeah, that was not connected necessarily with anything else. Yeah. At the time, Detective Riker says it didn't take long for them to realize that they were dealing with a serial killer. I went to that scene thinking I was going to be investigating the murder of one person. Three days later, uh, now have four young girls who have been strangled and left in the Green River. First body was found on Friday, the other three on Saturday. On Monday, we knew, well, that day, Sunday evening, we knew we had a serial killer. And, uh, no, there's no way I was going to walk away. I mean, you're on a mission. You're, you're going to find the person who is responsible for this. It would seem to me, based off his description of when the bodies were found, that they were either all murdered at the same time and then dumped, or that this guy was just super prolific and would murder day after day after day after day. Do we know about when the actual killings happened in relation to when the bodies were found? Well, I mean, we know now because he conf- he confessed, and we'll talk about that a little okay. bit later. But what they know then was Wendy Cofield, Deborah Bonner, Oprah Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Marsha Chapman, they all five had a history of prostitution. At least that's what law enforcement says. And at least four had disappeared from Pacific Highway South, and that was an area and still is an area notorious for prostitution activity. And it didn't take long for the media to attach a name, the Green River Killer, his hunting ground, Pacific Highway South in South King County. That's just 15 miles from Seattle, where he would cruise that strip hunting for victims. Each night you go home wondering who or if or when the next person would be killed. And every day you'd go in expecting and hoping and praying to find that one piece of evidence that would lead to his arrest so that people could walk freely, these young girls would not be victims anymore. So over the next several years, more and more murder victims, most of them teenage girls, were found. They were found in wooded or remote parts of King County. They were found, most of them, without any clothing or possessions. In many cases, months or even years had passed since the first victim's disappearance, and all that police recovered were skeletal remains. So the first five were really the only ones that were still intact bodies. All of the rest would be skeletal remains. And this was before DNA was really a mm-hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. did they have trouble even identifying the yeah, victims? Yeah. Identification of the victims sometimes took years. And then as the number of the bodies of young women dumped 
in the 80s continued to climb, so did the terror in the community as parents around the county heard that knock on the door. Every parent's worst nightmare. We continue to have to go to families' homes and say, we found your daughter, but she's, she's not alive. And the emotions that they went through were transferred to us. They could be angry. They could pound on our chest. They would totally collapse and grab a hold of us and, and send us to the floor with them in, in an embrace that wouldn't let go of us, uh, just hanging on to something. And, you know, I'm, so I'm a Christian guy. I have a strong faith. So that's where I drew my strength from and always felt confident and equipped to handle that sort of emotion. The, the anger part was a tough one because, you know, they felt like we didn't do enough, we weren't doing enough. But once they got to know us and they recognized the dedication and commitment that all the detectives had, it wasn't just me, every one of us who stayed there for so many years, Tom Jensen, Jim Dorian, Randy Mullinex, just to name a few, they soon learned that we were not going to give up. And um, imagine doing it just once. How many times did you have to go to a family and say they were a victim of the Green River Killer? Scores. I, 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 10, 20, 30, 40. I would not want to be that person. I That job sounds like the hardest job in the world to me. I mean, not only do you find these young women and have this image burned into your brain, like the, the image of the woman who was found in the river and her hand was like waving to the detective, like, help me. And then you have to go to her family and tell her family about what happened. And I can imagine their questions like, where did you find her? Yeah. And so Riker says, on top of that, many families didn't feel like they were doing enough. And the problem was that the perception, that's where we keep coming back to this, of the victims was frustrating. They had families that loved them. I mean, they had they came from complicated backgrounds and complicated stories, as we all do. But they are always lost in this story. And so I just remember that time so vividly because because my mom, she worked at a cycle company in Kent, the Raleigh Cycle Company. And it was very near the Green River. And a perk of that job was that our small family, my mom and my sister and I, we had access to a lot of cool bikes. And back then, I mean, much of the Green River and the area and all of these green spaces where he would dump those bodies was surrounded by farmland. And we'd go on these long bike rides traveling you know, on the Green River, it was like a a, a road that just, you know, the, one of those Kinda long... Kind of went on forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, I don't know if you watch those British crime dramas where they're, they're like in the Shetland or something yeah. like that. And they just, it was, <laughs> it was sort of had that feeling. And then, you know, you could go for miles without seeing anyone. In some spots, it was so quiet and remote that it felt like someone was watching you. They had these little wooden shacks perched halfway up the riverbank. And I was told that they were men to give shelter to fishermen from the elements. But I imagined now the Green River Killer <laughs> taking his victims there. Oh, what my a, gosh. What? A child's imagination. I can only... Exactly. Oh yes. Did you ever voice these thoughts to no. your family? No, not... I mean, I was thinking back to it, and I just don't think I ever really talked about it. I mean, I think that's part of the story back in the 80s, back where there's the technology is so... Like nothing. I mean, our kids can't even imagine no cell phones, no, none of that stuff. But I could never quite put a face to this man. I couldn't fathom his motivations, his evil deeds. I just wondered why. Why would someone want to kill young women 
and dump their bodies out in the cold? What did he do to them? What? Why would the girls go with him? You know, they're just back then. Adults were were pretty mum on the subject of the victims. But yeah, as I they thought, weren't going to tell you about this is what prostitution is, know. and this is why these victims would go willingly with him. But as I got older, I began to read between the lines of the news coverage. The victims were allegedly prostitutes and runaways, and my young self interpreted that as, quote unquote, bad girls. Um, And during our interview, as I said, Reichert said victim blaming was a huge part of the problem in that case. The victims were young girls who were in the human trafficking world. Back then it was called prostitution, and they were with pimps on Pacific Highway South in downtown Seattle. And the average citizen driving to and from work or to the shopping center, to the store and back home again, didn't see those little girls, although there were hundreds of them out there. They weren't visible to the community because part of it was they lived in an underworld, didn't want to be seen. But the other part is when they were seen, really the community didn't want to see them. They were there, but they wanted to pretend like they weren't there. And so they were having problems with the families. They were having problems with media slamming the progress of the Green River Task Force because they weren't producing a suspect. Everybody knows Ted Bundy, but if you travel around, they'll ask about Ted Bundy, and then you say, well, I, I worked on a case called the Green River case. And there'll be some people that go, never heard of it. And then you say, well, it was 49 young girls who worked in, the, in human trafficking versus college students. I would say it's changed today. But there's sort of this part of society who wants to kind of ignore that seedy underground life that exists out there. And Kim, that that kind of victim blaming still exists today. It reminds me of the homeless issue that we currently have really all over the country, but um, it's very pronounced in Seattle. And it's the same type of thing where it's like we know they're there. But we don't know what the solution is. And so I think sometimes the easiest thing to do is just not to think about it. Because we can't solve it. And if you think about it, it's just going to make you sad and depressed. Yeah. It's easier to just look the other way. But on the other hand, I I can totally relate to the victims because when I was 17, smack dab in my troubled years in 1989, they were still pulling the skeletal remains of the Green River Killers victims from these heavily forested areas in King County. And I never ran away from home, but I certainly put myself in vulnerable situations. And I think that was one of the big things about with my interview with him is his identifying with the victims. And you just don't really imagine that someone who, you know, this is a former congressman. This is a former King County sheriff, you know, someone who has great respect. Yeah, great respect that when he said, hey, I ran away from home. I could have been a victim. I wasn't. But bad things happen when you're young and you put yourself in situations. And Every weekend, I just remember my girlfriends and I would drive to that 7-Eleven before heading out to whatever party we were going to, and we were underage. And so it was decided that because I had the biggest chest, <laughs> oh my God. I was expected to wear this what we This is not called. going anywhere good. <laughs> exactly. It was called my bootlegging shirt. And I can still see myself. I had completely kind of forgot about this. What was the bootlegging shirt? I have to know. It was super tight. It was super tight. I mean, there were various ones depending on what season Uh it was. But (laughs) the the main thing was is that it showed off what I had. Your assets. And and (laughs) 
I can still see myself standing near the front of the convenience store. I had all of the money from the babysitting that we'd all put together, waiting for a man to come up and check me out. And, you know, all it would take was eye contact and a smile. And then I'd just say, hey, you know, can you do me a favor? And it never failed. Going back in time, thinking about these girls, thinking about them, you know, one of his ruses I now know is that he would set up shop at a 7-Eleven and put the hood up in his car or his truck and just like get the lay of the land and just act like he was like, and he was cruising. Anyway, I don't want to compare myself to the victims because I think that takes away from what they had to go through. I'm just saying I can relate to being a troubled teen who puts themselves in situations that I, I just, you were lucky there, but the grace yeah, of God, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's painful to admit that you know my insecure teen self enjoyed the power I felt using my sexuality to get these old guys to do what I wanted, and that the woman I've become now, I, it feels shameful to look back on that. And but, but I'm you're all, not alone. I mean, and I think this story goes to prove that I did similar things when I was a teenager as well. And I know other people, other, you know, women who have. And I think it's actually pretty common, probably more common than we realize, because I don't know that everybody does the same kind of self-reflection that you've been able to do through this story and think about your actions and motivations when you were a teenager. I think a lot of us did stupid things, but we just don't really reflect on it in the same way. Yeah. And I think that's where the true crime piece comes into play, not to justify what we're doing right now, but that self-reflection, like Mm -hmm. the evil deeds of this killer, the Green River Killer, just cut short so many of these girls' lives and they don't get their due. Well, and you, you know, were at a troubled stage in your life Mm -hmm. using your sexuality to get power over men, but you had an opportunity to grow and mature, and become yes. the, the yes. you know, lovely, smart, intelligent, strong person who would never do that today. Mm-hmm. These girls never had that chance. Yeah. And Reichert said that Ridgeway understood the vulnerability of young girls and he picked the perfect victims. And it's 30 years later, Kim, and human trafficking in King County is even more of a scourge now than it was back then. It's Some would say that it's a modern-day form of slavery. It's one of the fastest-growing criminal enterprises in the world after illegal guns and drugs. And children account for half of the victims. And I feel like the internet just makes it worse. I mean, it's just like one more feeding ground for these mm-hmm. um, people who would take advantage of kids. Yeah. Another problem Riker laments trying to nail a suspect was the technology of the 80s. It's so different than today. But as the 80s went went on, you know, it got, it got tougher because we had 40,000 tip sheets. Oh, my gosh. We had 10,000 10, items of evidence. And in a world today, when you mention that, young people will go, well, that's manageable. Well, no, we didn't have computers. <laughs> and <laughs> people are shocked when, when you say that. We were managing this case in the beginning on three-by-five note cards. <laughs> that's a lot of note cards. Yeah, so, incredible. Yeah. And so we had, no, we had no computers. We did eventually, in 1986, get what they called a VAX computer, which took up the space of a classroom. And uh, it contained data. We could only input data. It didn't make any comparisons or correlations between information. We had to print the information out, lay the printouts on the floor, and go through each printout with a highlighter to see if we had similar names, addresses, birth dates, and license plate numbers on those sheets. So, for example, 
people arrested for patronizing a prostitute on one list, people who assaulted women on another list, and someone who was registered to a pickup truck in Washington State. And we went down those three lists. If we found a name on all three lists, that would be a priority A. Even if we found a name or a birth date that was similar on two of the lists, that'd be a priority A suspect. And of course, this then leads to time passing Mm-hmm. and more opportunity for the Green River Killer to continue doing his dirty deeds. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine that the, the families had this sense of urgency because they knew more girls were going to be victimized the longer that this guy didn't serve justice for the murders that he had already committed, the more likely there were going to be just even more victims. I think that there just kind of became this fatigue with it. You know, we right. brought up the homeless situation happening. And I think a lot of people will say they, they have this fatigue. You, you, you start feeling like, how do we solve this? How do we do this? And I, and I think that the bodies kept coming, the tips kept coming, but they couldn't narrow down a suspect. Investigators kept living and breathing the case. I mean, I get the victim's families and they're just like, hey, you're not giving my daughter her due. I, I totally get that. But on the other side, you've got investigators who are like, we're, we're doing everything. We're sacrificing our families. We're, we're working, yeah. you know, however many hours a day. And they just weren't making progress. It takes a toll on you. The memories of every victim, every body that I recovered, I was at almost every one of the scenes. And I can close my eyes and I can tell you the positions of the bodies, what was left of their remains. And everywhere I drive almost, especially around King County and up towards the Cascades, I can point out every site that I was at. It brings back those memories. And so during that time, I was totally obsessed with catching this guy. There was no way. In fact, there was a point where the command staff was worried that I was too deeply involved and actually thought that I needed to take a break from the case. And I fought to stay on the case. Uh, It would have hurt me more to be removed from the investigation. Yeah, I'm sure it's not going to stop going through his mind. So he may as well be on the case and try to find a resolution because he's going to be thinking about it. Like he said, he still has those images that keep flickering through his brain. So have the images but not work the case or have the images and try to find a solution. I feel like, you know, of course, you've got to keep working it so that you can have a resolution and maybe, maybe get those images to stop flickering through your brain. Well, and it's a really great thing that he, you know, he has described himself as a square peg in a round hole. And he's a different kind of guy in terms of like, he, he just never gave up on this case. He, you know, even though the command wanted him to, you know, hey, Riker, you're getting a little bit too involved here. You know, it really affected his family life. But then it also really made him the perfect detective to never, ever give up on the case. And, and part of another challenge is that where and how the Green River Killer murdered and dumped his victims. They were young girls who were abused at home, ran away, lived on the street, abused on the street. And they were also abused by the justice system uh, because they were treated as criminals rather than young girls who were, you know, that needed a lot of help because of where they came from. But imagine you're this young girl who has no self-esteem and you're on the street and you're selling your body. All that has to happen is is a guy come up with his car, make a deal, you jump in, you drive off. There may or may not be someone standing there with you. There may or may not be a pimp that's watching over you. Uh, you disappear into the night. The body is, you know, he, he, he rapes and kills the victim. 
The body is then put in a, in a wooded area or in a river, um, areas that aren't frequently traveled. In some cases, the bodies of these young girls weren't found until six years later. But most of the bodies that were connected with the Green River were all skeletons or severely decomposed to the point where trying to get any sort of a forensic evidence would have been impossible. So if you, if you think of it this way, the technology back then worked in his favor. So basically, there, there is a turning point. One of the hundreds of men that became a suspect, because imagine all of the, you know, you've got all these Johns. They got a lot of suspects that they're working with, right? And one of those was Gary Leon Ridgway. In 1982, he was busted for soliciting an undercover cop for sex on Pacific Highway South. Now, that arrest didn't raise alarm bells. After all, he wasn't the only guy arrested for soliciting right. prostitution. But he was interviewed in 1984 when a victim was seen going with him who was reported missing by her family. But Ridgway didn't fit the profile. First of all, he agreed to be interviewed without an attorney and to take a polygraph. And in doing this, police say Ridgway avoided suspicion all the more. And Ridgway's psychopathy carried him through the polygraph in 1984. Police say he was completely unperturbed. He totally passed. And he didn't fit the popular preconceptions of what a serial killer is. He was not a quote-unquote loner. He controlled his anger. He had no significant known juvenile or violent criminal history. And he was either married or had a steady girlfriend during all of his adult life and had steady employment um, at the place that he'd worked at for many, many, many years. So, like, how old was he when they first start to think this could be our guy um, I think he was in his uh, 30s, his early 30s, I believe. So he gets away in 1984, passing all the their tests. But then in 1986, someone survives an attack that leads to Gary Ridgway and that bumps him from a person of interest to a suspect. We were interviewing all the girls that we can who are booked into jail for prostitution, who are on the street, those that would talk to us. And one of them said, yes, I, you know, I remember a guy... He was driving a pickup truck. I escaped from him. She gives a description. We finally figure out who he is. And so we put together enough probable cause to get a search warrant. We searched his locker at work, the Kentworth truck. We took a pair of coveralls out of that locker and we kept it. And in the search warrant, we asked the judge for a blood sample. The judge said that that would be too invasive to stick a needle in his arm, but you can have him chew on a gauze and collect his saliva. I find it interesting that having a needle in your arm is too invasive, but you can get something from their mouth. I mean, you're still going into their body, but whatever. Yeah, I think, (laughs) you know, because of the needle or the poke. I know, I know. So that's very arbitrary. Yeah, so remember that this was the 80s. There wasn't DNA DNA profiling, so the saliva was just about getting the blood type. Did she know about the other killings, and did she put together that this guy might have been... The serial killer. Yeah, we know that Gary Ridgway said as many as 50 prostitutes would say before getting going with him was like, are you the Green River killer? Because word on the street, they were very, very, very worried. But because of the way that he looked, they just couldn't wrap their head around that this guy could do this. And so he also had some ruses, which we'll get to later. But but what she said is that he wanted part of his M.O. was that he either wanted to have sex in the woods and then would kill him there or he would try to get them back to his home and kill them there and then and then dump their bodies somewhere else and so she said that 
he took her into the woods. She said that for some reason the sex didn't happen and then he got mad. And then she said something came over him where he turned like pasty white and he just had this look like he he became a completely different person. And he tried to kill her and basically she got away. Very, very I'm chilling. I'm curious about why didn't the sex happen? Did she say, like, this is too weird, I don't want to do it out here, or, like, do you know? I think that what she'd said was that he couldn't, he was having problems getting aroused. A- and so something happened. She said that she felt that he didn't even want to have sex with her. She felt like he wanted to kill her and have sex with her body, is what she said. Oh. And so it was really so maybe dark. his... And what we it, know about... His, cri- his criminal mind was, like, escalating. I think it's it was already escalated. It was like run run loose, run free. Well, but before was it was, I want to have sex with the women, kill them, and then have sex with their mm-hmm. corpses. Now he's jumping ahead to, I don't even care if I have sex with them ahead of time. I just want the corpses. You know, I don't think that, that we can know. We know that he was into necrophilia for sure. But um, an- another part that's interesting and kind of lends credence to the law enforcement piece is that she didn't go right away to the police because... There's that push-pull between, you know, she's doing a legal activity, what would right. be considered a legal activity. And back then they didn't give leeway because you were underage or whatever. That didn't matter. Yeah. And even Reichert says they were victimized twice by the Green River Killer and then also by the judicial system. So next week on episode two of the Green River Killer, we'll talk about what led to the capture of the Green River Killer at long last and reveal little-known facts gleaned from the 138-page summary of evidence document that was put together by the prosecuting attorney's office that details not only Ridgway's crime, but his lust for having sex with the bodies of his victims, how it was so strong it would bypass his normal, cautious nature toward going back to these dump sites, and also how he would con his victims and his relationship with his mother. Ooh, the mother. Can't wait to hear that. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. 